once you have the opportunity to put a 60 kilogram whale penis across your boss's desk, <laughs> you just can't resist. That is going to happen. And it's like, it's like anything. Once people think there's a thing you like, they will start bringing you more of them. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with the writer and artist Kendra Green about her new book, The Museum of Whales You'll Never See. You know, being a podcaster, I often get approached by publicists who want me to talk about various books on this podcast, and that's great. But I didn't find out about Kendra's book through the normal publicity channels. I learned of its existence when a friend was talking about it on social media. And when I learned of its subject matter, that is museums in Iceland, I immediately knew that I wanted to read it, in part because I had a really amazing experience in Iceland about three years ago, and in part because I've always been fascinated with museums, and especially how they serve and attract and capture the imagination of travelers. Kendra and I talk about this quite a bit in the interview, how museums help communities and even entire countries present themselves to visitors. And how seeing, say, an object of my childhood like Kermit the Frog in the Smithsonian Museum can be an exciting moment that resonates on several levels. We talk about what makes Iceland unique, both as an isolated island culture at the very edge of Europe and as a place with a lot of strange little museums. Museums like the Icelandic Sea Monster Museum or the Saga Museum, which are more about stories than about objects. Museums like the Icelandic Phallological Museum, which, yes, is dedicated to penises. Or the Museum of Icelandic Sorcery and Witchcraft, which displays a very creepy object known as necropants, which we'll discuss in more detail in the interview itself. Now, should you want to plan an around-the-world journey that involves the weird little museums of Iceland, you might want to check out the flight itineraries organized by my sponsor, Airtrex, which can help you design multi-stop flight itineraries for vagabonding journeys. Check out their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Tortuga, who makes backpacks and backpack accessories for the vagabonding traveler. Go to rolfpotts.com slash Tortuga to see a selection of their travel packs. And if you see anything that you like, that rolfpotts.com slash Tortuga address will automatically qualify you for 10% off the price of your order at checkout. But for now, here's Kendra Green and I talking about what defines museums and why they're so appealing to travelers. We start by talking about our own personal interest in museums when we were kids. Let's listen in. You know, Kendra, the thing that I loved when I saw that your book existed is the fact that it's not just about Iceland, which is a place that I love, but it's also a place about museums, which are places that have caught my imagination, especially as a traveler since I was a little kid. And I remember one of my first big iconic journeys as a little kid was going to Chicago. Uh, and I'm from Kansas initially. And uh, so seeing Lake Michigan, for example, was the closest I'd ever come to an ocean. And I visited the Museum of Science and Industry, and it just captured my imagination in ways that nothing else in Chicago ever had. And ever since then, I've really been fond of museums and how they work and how they interact with travel, which is another thing I really love. So I'm curious to know, what was your initial fascination with museums? Well, I think this is such a perfect intersection. Uh, I mean, I can think about field trips, right? The the Channel Islands Interpretive Center, uh, the Olivas Adobe House, right? I grew up in California. Mm. There was a Magritte exhibition at LACMA in my senior year of high school that we went, attended as part of my English class. Uh, but I think about, I was going to school uh, in a little suburb north of Chicago, Lake Forest, and 
I remember getting this phone call from my mother my first semester, and she'd grown up in the Rocky Mountains, Utah, Idaho, and had made one trip to Chicago in her youth. And the thing that stuck out to her was the Museum of Science and Industry. And mm. she said, "You were my mother's not the kind of person to issue edicts, right? That's not the relationship we have. Uh, but this stands out. She said, you are not to come home until you have visited Colleen Moore's dollhouse. Hmm. And and I right, I took this advice. I was not to come home uh, until I went there. And I don't know if you've been, uh, if you don't actually know the right name for it, it's very hard to find on the map. It's not referred to as Colleen Moore's dollhouse. It's the fairy castle. And it's down in the basement. Uh, a human person could technically fit inside, hmm. but it's this old silent film star who had uh, the money to make this exquisite thing, uh, pieces of her jewelry would be refitted into to chandeliers, that sort of thing. There's a, a chapel in this dollhouse, and it has a piece of the true cross within it. Wow. Uh, right, so I think that was sort of the initiation. It's the same trip where I saw what's still one of my favorite things in any museum anywhere. Uh, it, it's gone now. But at the time, while you were waiting in line for the U-boat exhibition, right, one of the, the crowning glories of the science and industry, there was this uh, this prism, sort of plexiglass, floor to ceiling, that was a display of everything they had taken out the last time they'd cleaned it. Hmm. Right. So the things that uh, brochures, wallets, hats, sunglasses, notably toupees, <laughs> right, money, all the things that uh, people had lost and either unwittingly or couldn't retrieve uh, out of the submarine again, and and thinking about that that human interaction. Uh, I, I think it's clear to see in the work I've continued to do for what the last twenty years. Uh, that's a, a fascination I've never gotten over. Yeah, that's 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 interesting that we have the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago in common. You know, I haven't been there since like nineteen seventy eight, um, <laughs> but but I just know that it was like I, when I went to Chicago, I was more interested in the museum. I don't know, maybe the Natural History Museum that had dinosaurs because I was really obsessed with dinosaurs at the time. And then, you know, that science and industry museum blew me away in ways that I hadn't expected. And you mentioned this dollhouse by a silent film star. One of the things that interested me in the Smithsonian, which is another museum I fell in love with when I was young, is the fact that they had Kermit the Frog in there, right? Oh, my goodness. How could you not love that? Well, exactly. And I'm just wondering, like, kids of a younger generation might not know who Kermit the Frog is, right? Um, and so I think that there's an extent to which the ground can sort of shift beneath your feet in museums and what might fascinate you in one situation might not in another. Um, and so, so what do you make of that? What, what, when you were young, obviously now you've sort of experienced museums in a more professionalized context, but when you were young, what stood out to you in museums? What did you find your gaze attracted to? And here I think I have sort of a, a broad interpretation of museums in some way, right? I think about the La Brea Tar Pits. There's a sculpture in the middle of this uh, mammoth mother and child, uh, where I believe it's the, the mother that's sinking into the tar that was uh, shocking as mm. a child, right? This this portrait of loss was really affecting, uh, right? So I think of that sort of thing. I think for a long time, I don't know that... I had a lot of expectations of museum. Like I remember there was a flash wall at the LA County Museum, uh, the Children's Museum, where every periodically a light would go off and you could see your shadow against the wall, right? That was sort of amazing. 
but in some ways I feel like the the first time I started really thinking about museums, uh, I was 18 and studying abroad in Santiago de Chile. And there was, the thing about museums is that they were accessible, right? I wasn't really interested in going out to the discotecas, uh, but I didn't go out to the bars, but there were these places that were full of things that were interesting and accessible and they sort of had to let me in. Huh. And right, this, this, blurring of, of public and private space, uh, I think, is part of what's so fascinating about these places. Yeah, well, they often become places that we just habitually go to as travelers. You know, when you can't spend uh, three weeks in Paris and, and see a lot of things, you go to a set number of museums that somehow present things to you. In your book, you, you write about Iceland. And I went to Iceland, my, the one and only time I went there um, was 2017, and I loved it, and it seemed like a very museum-centric place. And even I got recommendations to so many museums that I couldn't even go to them all if I had time. But as you say in your book, Iceland is a place that didn't modernize until very recently and didn't have that many museums until the 1990s. And there's just so many delightful little facts about how isolated and small Iceland is. I mean, it has about a little over 300,000 people, which is the size of my hometown, Wichita, Kansas, you know, in the entire country. And the, and the phone book has everybody in the country by first name. And uh, like rubber boots, as you say in the book, really changed the, I, you know, really, that was a technology that changed the way people live because their, their fishing was suddenly changed. Communion wafers there were made of dry fish when they couldn't have enough bread to make them. Um, because it's an island, the plague wiped a lot of people out, a third of the population in 1402. Um, and so, I mean, supermarkets didn't arrive in Iceland until 1955. They didn't have a TV station until 1966. So why, of all the places you've been in the world and all of your expertise in museums, why focus on Iceland? I think partly because of the fascination that nowhere, nowhere I've ever been uh, either working for, volunteering at, interning with, visiting. I have never seen this border between the private and the public be so totally permeable, right? It's like it's not there. And then when you think about how many there are, it's sort of a hard thing to count because it's a little bit difficult to define a museum. And uh, there's so many of them and they're so small that there are additional reasons why it's hard to count them. But if we take sort of a broad view of what a museum is, uh, the museum studies professor on the island, his Excel spreadsheet from 2014 was at 265. And we've definitely added on to it since then. I'd arrived in Iceland thinking that uh, on, on the general theory that the Icelandic Phallological Museum, which gets written up all the time uh, right around the globe, noted for being oddball, kooky, weird, eccentric, sadistic sometimes. If you think about it in terms of museums, it's astonishingly traditional, right? It's the amateur natural historian. It is the individual collector, right? It is the cabinet of curiosity that outgrows the room that it's in. And for the, the sudden bloom of museums, the original curator of the second oldest museum in Iceland is still alive. He turned 99 in April. He retired about four years ago. But the, we have a chance in Iceland to be connected to a history of museums, which feels pretty unique, right? That we It's still recent enough that we can see how it's unfolded, uh, right? We can be in contact with the people 
that shaped it to begin with, as well as watching uh, this proliferation and expansion and hyper-evolution right now. Yeah, it's interesting. Before I went to Iceland, a couple of things that were recommended to me were museums that appear in your book, the, uh, the Phallological Museum, the, the Penis Museum, people call, told me. And then um, they, people kept talking about the necropants, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. In, in, the, in the Magic and Sorcery Museum, neither of which I went to. So, it, so it's interesting how suddenly we talk about narratives in museums. Like the story went before this. It's like, if you want to see something weird, go see the necropants and we'll talk about what exactly necropants are. Or this penis museum, right? The phallological museum. And so was it the newness of museums or the weirdness of museums uh, that made you focus on Iceland specifically? What was it that made you think this was worth the book? Yeah, so I started out thinking about this this one essay, thinking about how what looks odd is actually really traditional, that these are, after all, uh, places that house wonder, right, that are temples to the muse. They actually, if you think about it, right, specialize in what is novel, what is strange, uh, right, what will surprise you about how the world works. So I think there's, right, that uh, strong traditionalness, but then... Right. As soon as you have a museum of something, uh, if it doesn't sound sort of solid and, and stayed and traditional, it's it's kind of delicious, right? It, it piques your interest. The Museum of Prophecy. How is that even possible? What could that be? And how does that manifest itself? It's actually really beautiful. Uh, so there's this old, uh, right, like Iceland never lets go of a building. So it's a, a place that was sort of a gardening shed. Uh, it used to be the town theater. Dances were held there and fights often broke out after those dances, I'm told. Uh, so there's this sort of semi-circular, right, sort of half pipe of a building. And there are four rooms where you can have your fortune told, uh, either your palm read, uh, your runes read, your tarot cards read, or Iceland didn't have tea. It's a coffee drinking nation. So you don't have your tea leaves read. You have your coffee grounds read. Huh. But the point of the Museum of Prophecy is to focus on one of the important women in the Icelandic sagas who is geographically relevant to Skagastrond. And uh, right, she's a, a powerful, independent woman who uh, is called upon for her ability to change the future, right, to affect people, to remove curses, Though in some ways, what I really love is the story about her, that in her town, she was considered just uh, right, powerful, wealthy, independent. And how was she ever going to find a husband, right? The town was really worried about this. So they found the most agreeable man that they could find and suggested to him that he should marry her. And he was so agreeable. Uh, of course, he thought that was a good idea. And she did too. And uh, right, he's sort of a minor character in the sagas, helping out when she needs it. So that's interesting. And of course, the Saga Museum uh, is itself, it's sort of, a, have you been to the Saga Museum? I love the Saga Museum. Yeah. Although, I, depending on how it gets translated, I feel like there are like maybe three places that uh, are sometimes called the Saga Museum that have slightly different names uh, when you're when you're being really strict about it. But yes, the, the one in the, the Perlon, yeah? Yeah. Or the um, big domed building. Well, there's the one in the big dome building, and then there's one sort of near the waterfront um, in in Reykjavik, um, which is the one I went to most recently. Uh, and of course, that's that's an imaginative space too. They have little costumes where you can dress up in chainmail and furs and helmets and stuff, um, which I'm sure that the kids love. Um, and so it's almost like every museum. There's a meta aspect to every museum. 
you know, that there's the content of the museum and then there's the idea of the museum. As an aside, have you been to the Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles? I have lost my museum picking privileges with my brother over the Museum of Jurassic Technology. I think it is the perfect meta museum, right? It is the Museum Lovers Museum. Uh, but as my brother, who is very game and one of the most supportive, loving people in my life, uh, has pointed out, if you aren't prepared for it, it's maybe not for you. Well, how do we, just just so we don't ruin it for my listeners, how would you even describe what the Museum of Jurassic Technology is and, and why you should go there, apart from the fact that it's sort of mind-blowingly weird and, and surprising? Right. You should know that it's made by a MacArthur genius, uh, right, a former special effects artist. And to me, it's a museum about what we believe and how we have faith in it, hmm. which yeah. maybe is what everything is about if we paid more attention. But uh, this is a place that's so uh, specifically grappling with it. Well, and that goes back to these social justice ideas of like who is telling the story and how does it mm -hmm. intersect with with other stories that we've accepted about other things. Um, definitely, again, for my listeners, definitely worth visiting in a way in just sort of this deeply weird, mind blowing way, the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Now, in the context of Iceland, you talk a bit about um, how museums often collect objects that are no longer relevant. Uh, have you read Dean McCannell's The Tourist? No, I haven't. I'll put it on the list. Tell yeah, me more. It, it's a sociology of tourism. So basically he studies, um, it's it's one of these iconic texts from the 1970s where he sort of turns the lens on the travelers themselves and studies their idiosyncrasies instead of the anthropological idiosyncrasies of the communities that travelers visit. And one thing it talks about in the context of museums is that oftentimes the, the existence of modernity um, means that museums often collect that which is no longer relevant to modernity, right? Mm -hmm. And it feels like this is something that ha happens in Iceland. Like basically, post-World War II, when the country modernized, suddenly there's this race on the part of curators, you can probably describe it better than me, to collect all of this stuff. Like there's these bedboards you describe, well, you can describe them better than me, uh, and other things that are suddenly no longer relevant now that this is a country that is on its way to getting televisions and supermarkets. So in so in an Iceland-specific way, how have museums stepped in to preserve parts of society that are no longer relevant because of uh, modern conveniences? And Iceland is such an interesting case study on this because their modernization happens so quickly that uh, it's fundamentally after World War II, right, that the, the American occupation has some influence, right, air travel, uh, right, telecommunications, cables being laid through the sea, right, there are a bunch of factors, but uh, getting out from under Danish rule and starting to have money, it's, it's amazing how quickly the country changes. This is a place that you couldn't actually circumnavigate by land. There weren't enough bridges until the mid-70s, right? It's just isolated and remote in so many different ways. And not only does it modernize really quickly, right? A couple of decades, this is a thing that happens in a generation. There's such a clear sense of the national feeling about the past, right? Of, of having been a colony, of having been one of the poorest nations in Europe for a very long time, that there's just this urge to be done with it, right? This, this full on heady embrace of a new possibility. So 
in some ways, it's a great time to be a collector because you can see where there's such a clear dividing line between then and now. And this rush to let go, right, to to have the new things, to be done with the old things, to stop being reminded of all of the toil and the misery, right? This history where, uh, right, you mentioned the Black Plague, but there's a series of episodes in Icelandic history that will wipe out one-tenth to one-third of the population, right? Repeatedly. The 1700s, it happens about three times. So if if you've got a place to put it, all of this stuff can, there's so much to choose from, right? You just have to get to it before it's gone. So things like the bedboards, uh, right? People were still living in turf houses in Iceland into the 70s, uh, right? These places that are constructed from sod, cut in three different ways to be considered three different types of building material that are essentially always trying to cave back into the earth, right? They require repairs every couple of years. And in these uh, close settings where you might need to pen your sheep in with you for the entire winter, which is a long time. You probably don't have glass for windows for a really long time. You might have some vellum that you stretch over a hole in the wall. You also have these beds that are often too short to lie down in and need to fit a couple of people and need to be able to convert to workspaces during the day. So you have the bedboards, uh, sort of a, a rail that you drop in on the side to keep you from rolling out or being pushed out of bed by someone else. And wood is hard to come by in Iceland. Uh, Most of it comes by way of shipwreck or from driftwood that's been seasoning in the currents from Siberia. So things like the the bedboard, these often really beautifully carved pieces of wood, just carried too much psychic pain for Mm. most families, right? They didn't need them. And they didn't want them. So if you're the if you're one of the few people who's looking for them, you probably have a lot to choose from. And it's such an eccentric thing to do that you only have to go out looking for them for a, a little while before your reputation is enough that right things will come to you. Right? It's not just the stuff that people needed to get rid of. It's then, and I think right, we probably could all look around our houses right now and know these things that. We'd be happy to let go of them if we could give them to a good home. And you aren't going to find a better home than a museum. Well, I know that sometimes you go to a, um, a community museum in a place like here in Kansas, and the curators are almost overwhelmed sometimes with people bringing armloads of things in from their dead grandfather. And it's like, I don't want to throw this away, but I don't know how to use it. So you, can you display this, right? So that's, that's part of the conversation. And you use the phrase or you use the concept in your book that there's really no such thing as a museum of poverty, but in a way, you know, things like bedboards or things that become relics after modernity comes in and makes them not necessary in a way that they're, they're sort of expressions of poverty in a way. So keeping in mind that Iceland became independent, is it, was it 1944 when Iceland became independent? Uh, That sounds right. I'm trying to remember what anniversary we're coming up on this year. Um, so, so, I mean, Iceland is trying, as a new country, is trying to express its independence from Denmark, but then also all the stuff it has is emblematic of a very impoverished past. So how do museums in places like, like Iceland make sense of the fact that these are often objects of shame for uh, people who are still alive? 
Well, and it's interesting, right? Definitely in the 1800s, it's a century of a lot of nations, not just Iceland, thinking about museums as nation-building activities, uh, right? We can we can trace a lot of national museums sort of the, to that era and that thinking. And it's one of the sort of early things Iceland decides to do, that it, it commits to having a national museum long before it becomes a nation. And eventually it's uh, the first act of parliament is to officially, formally get a house for this thing that they've been putting together for the last 80 years and which recalls a certain, or which demands a certain amount of getting things back, right? The, the, the important stuff, the precious stuff that Denmark has taken as their own, right? Sort of the way that we think of, say, the Elgin marbles, the, oh, don't worry, uh, right? We, we are big, we have resources, we'll just safeguard uh, the national treasures, even if we respected you as your own nation. Hmm. Uh, we're just going to take care of this for you for a while. Elgin mar- marbles being Greek marbles in, that are in England, right? Yeah, the, uh, the Parthenon sculptures. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I know that there's a there's a famous story. Correct me if I'm wrong. That actually, like half the city of Reykjavik came out when the sagas came back from Denmark. That basically there was these the, there's these famous old manuscripts that came back. So, uh, in a way, these objects of national identity are are important to people. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's really interesting to think about that we need the stuff uh, right, that we we gather the evidence to to certify that we are a people, we are a distinct culture, we have a history, we have a past. Look, we have the stuff to prove it. And right, the profound connection that uh, right, different nations, different cultures uh, attach to specific objects. In some ways I think about, uh, I really notice when I travel, the ways that countries that are not mine revere their writers. Right, mm. that you can find uh, right their their books, their statues, right, they're on T-shirts. That if you needed uh, a right a postcard or a souvenir to commemorate being in Chile or being in Portugal, don't worry, uh, we've got a writer that we want to point you to. Is there an American writer? I mean, what, what do we point people to in the U.S. like Thoreau or Whitman or Dickinson? I. I think regionally that happens. Yeah, right mm-hmm. uh, on the West Coast, right? There's sort of a uh, a John Steinbeck moment, maybe. But oh yeah, Jack London out in Oakland, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I feel like as a nation, we have not consolidated, and maybe that's because of of something right big and beautiful that we have so many literary traditions that we haven't focused on the canonization of just a couple of people. But I also think we don't, uh, I don't know, we don't have the same sort of sense of the writer as cultural figure, right? The writer is political figure, the, uh, right, I love the the poet warrior, right? That if you think of El Saga, that one of the important things about him, uh, and this man who becomes sort of famously brutish, that uh, he was paid for his first poem when he was three, hmm. prefiguring uh, right an escape from a king and queen on foreign soil where he he wins his life because of the poem he's able to create. Yeah, I'll put the I'll put the the link to that in the show notes just because I think any listeners who are not familiar with the sagas, um, it is a very old literary tradition, and I they say that Iceland is like the most literate 
country in the world. Like people read more books there than any place. And and so in a way, I, I think maybe if you're if you're an impoverished country that just happens to have invented a lot of great literature a thousand years ago, maybe you're going to showcase that um, in a way that maybe the United States is a place that's too big and and complicated to do so in a similar way. Do you did you see a lot of literary? I mean, obviously there's the saga museums. Is there other evidence? of this literary culture in the museums that you went to in, in Iceland? Well, I think obviously the sagas are the most direct uh, ways to think about this, but I think the existence of so many and such good museums is a direct testament to a storytelling nation, right? To a place that, uh, as you say, right, has been impoverished in some of the traditional forms of culture, right? Uh, very little workable clay, uh, basically no metal deposits, not really any wood to work, and definitely not enough to burn to heat those other two things. Uh, right, a place that quashes uh, gatherings for music and dance for a few hundred years. But there's just a lot of room to put your cultural production into language, right? Into right the, the intangible arts. And the, the literacy, as you say, it's, it's stunning, right? Something like one in 10 Icelanders will publish a book in their lifetime. Wow. The country publishes the most books per capita of any nation. Uh, yeah, it's, in the, it, it's always at the top of literacy statistics in the world. Uh, there's, there's, in fact, a phrase that I really love that translates as to have a book in your belly, which is how you talk about this common phenomenon of feeling like there's a book you need to write. Yeah, that's that's just remarkable. Um, and so there's this there's certainly this narrative aspect to museums in Iceland, but then there's also like the narrative some is sometimes backloaded because in your book you talk about people just sort of collecting things and eventually the tour buses start stopping there and people start seeking out these collections and suddenly they're standing in a room with these Icelanders who don't consider themselves curators asking where the toilet is to this museum, right? So how would you define the, 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 the connection on the other end, on the, sort of the non-national museum side? What is the relationship between a collection and a museum and how does the collection of a single person become a more public phenomenon of a museum that people actually will want to travel to see? And this is so interesting because the Icelandic word sap, uh, spelled S-A-F-N, it means both things, right? It is both a collection and a museum. And so you, right, you see this in the word for library, but you could also use it if you were talking about a group of sheep, for instance, right? It's sort of a, a, a grouping of things. And so I think partly this, uh, this permeability I was talking about earlier between the private collection and the public museum can exist because there's no boundary in the language, right? It's, it's, it doesn't have a transition to make. Uh, but that said, uh, right, that, that's on the side of these things are, are deeply intertwined and kind of the same things and maybe falsely distinguished. I think there actually is a, a very different culture around collecting versus museums. So uh, I think you can see it both in the way that there are these collections that amass over decades and eventually sort of tip into being a museum, that there's this very sort of grassroots, people come to see it. And that's, at the end of the day, what makes it a museum. But at, at some point, the collector has to acknowledge that people are coming and maybe they should make things a little bit more formal to deal with the fact that right, the neighbors have started coming, the people in town have started bringing visitors, the press has come by, and then right, the, the tourists, right, the strangers, 
start making their way. Can you give an example in the context of Iceland about this kind of collection that became a museum? My absolute favorite is Petra Stone Collection over on the East Coast. So a, a woman whose actual genuine God-given name is Petra, who took an interest in stones, would go on a walk basically every day of her life. And basically every walk, she would encounter a stone that was worth bringing home. And the sort of the edges of Iceland, the, the eastern coast and the Vestfjords, are geolo geologically speaking the, the oldest parts of the country and particularly notable for the jasper and the onyx and the agate. Uh, right, so there's a wide variety of types of stone that the, the, all that pressure has created. And uh, this was a woman that had a particular eye for it and was willing to go on these walks, right? Was willing to be a woman outside of her home, even though the neighbors talked. Hmm. And what's handy about stones, uh, you couldn't pick a better thing to collect in some sense, because when you run out of space in the two bedroom house that's housing you and your husband and your mother-in-law and your four children, you've got plenty of room outside by the flagpole, into the garden, uh, right back up the hill, and the thing that's outside is especially easy for people to notice uh, on the one road that goes through town. And over time, the visitors notice and stop in, right? The touring Italian cyclists want to know what's going on. Uh, but then also the tour guides. And there are tour guides who still visit, uh, right? Who will still sit in Petra's kitchen and get a cup of coffee who have been going there for 40 years. And is it their choice? Are, are the tour guides and the bicycles deciding that this is a, a museum or did, did, did Petra consciously decide that it was going to be uh, available to the public? Uh, people had been coming for decades. Tour buses had been coming uh, long before she decided to actually acknowledge that it should be a museum. Hmm. And the way the family tells the story, really the thing that did it was a day that uh, a, a tour bus was in and someone asked to use the toilet and Petra pointed to the right door and the tourist said, no, no, I'm sorry, uh, it's full, Where, where's another one? And she said, that's it. And the tourist said, what kind of museum has only one toilet? <laughs> so a woman who had uh, been very emphatic about she couldn't see charging admission uh, for people to come see these stones, right? She had collected them for free. Uh, she didn't think of them as belonging to her, did find her way to being able to start charging admission to raise the money to build the two additional bathrooms that are still standing in the garden. Yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of a, a consumer-driven phenomenon. And, you know, speaking of which, I, I, I probably shouldn't uh, uh, leave off the fact that these two museums that I was suggested to go to but I didn't go to are the Phallological Museum and then this magic museum with the necropants. <laughs> so just so my listeners aren't left uh, hanging on these two things, um, what are necropants and what are they doing in a museum? And uh, then also why a penis museum, right? We have so much to talk about, Rolf. Right. So, right. so the necropants, uh, it's part of uh, an Icelandic magical thinking. Uh, if you had the right grimoire, I'm sure it would give you the exact instructions. Uh, but there's a process by which if you, if you make a contract with a man before he dies, that you have his permission upon his natural death to flay him from the waist down, uh, then you can take that skin and right, you say the right things, you sprinkle the right solution, and you can make yourself the necropants. 
Now, Icelandic magic is really notable for its concerns uh, to keep people from stealing from you and that somebody would love you. Right? This is the, the sort of fundamental concerns of Icelandic magic are pining as, as far as I can tell. Wow. And, and not, I think this is really important, right? In this long impoverished nation, the effort isn't to get rich quick, usually, right? Most, there's a preponderance of ways that you can keep someone from stealing from you or to find out who did, right? This is just trying not to lose what little you already have. So the Necro Pants are sort of an exception in that uh, they will actually provide you with means, right? If you reach into the scrotum and treat it sort of like a change purse, you will pull out coins. But even there, there's the sort of modesty to it, right? That you were specifically not to get greedy, right? Don't just go keep scooping around for everything you can get. Be patient. There will always be whatever you need. Just take what you need for now. Well, not to bury the lead here. So necro pants are when you flay a human and you wear his skin as pants? That's it exactly. <laughs> okay. And, okay. We'll, we'll proceed then. So, so it's such a macabre thing, right? Um, and so, so there actually have been people in Iceland who've worn other people's skin as pants for magical reasons. Well, this is a harder thing to document, right? Even the sort of the instruction book, the, right, the, the grimoire, the books of magic, we have very few of them. I think there's maybe two dozen in the world from Iceland at this point, uh, many of them not in Iceland itself. This is the sort of thing, right, that the king's antiquarian would come and take back on the, uh, the chest full of manuscripts. And, right, some of those, those ships we know on their way to going back to Denmark have been lost. So of the grimoires we have, which are not many, uh, the ones we have are copied and probably late. They're, they're always hand copied, even though this is uh, a nation that gets a printing press and makes a point of having an Icelandic Bible in the 1500s, I think 83 or 84. But they, they have the means of production, but because it's for other political reasons, important to maintain Iceland as a Christian nation, right? The grimoires as a thing that is illegal to possess Right, they can be Grim burned in front a, of you. Grimoire being a magic book, exactly. Okay. Uh, right, there, there are specific punishments that involve the the owner being flayed, not flayed, the owner being uh, beaten, while uh, the pages of their grimoire are burned underneath their face. Hmm. So the actual magic traditions are hard, are not very well documented because a lot of these books were burned up and people were punished for owning them. Exactly. Right. They were they were forbidden. So you would take great pains uh, not to be caught having them, right? But just owning them, much less being heard to be muttering the incantation to make your sheep mind you better. Huh. Right? These, are, these are both punishable activities. Uh, in Iceland, there are 21 people killed for sorcery and witchcraft. There's sort of a point of pride that only one of them was a woman. This isn't the misogynistic witch burning you've heard so much about. Just to clarify one thing, so like in the necro pants, the scrotum in the necro pants is used as a coin purse? Yes, right. Uh, well, and when I say used as a coin purse, that is the place where coins will appear and then where you will find them. So it's not like oh. you would store money there. It's where you would go to find money because you were in need. <laughs> it's the ATM, as it were, of the necro pants. <laughs> <laughs> I, exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, so uh, in, listeners um, who are interested in that can go and learn more at the, uh, at, what's the name of that museum? Museum of Magic and Sorcery? It's the Icelandic Museum of Sorcery and Witchcraft. Okay. Um, and then the Phallological Museum, or the Penis Museum, as it was described to me, is this t- similarly of a pagan tradition, or is it more of just the result of a nerdy guy who was interested in, in penises? How does it, Where does the Penis Museum come from? Why does it exist? Yeah, I was going to say, not really either, actually, though the curator, one of his daughters, did have a lovely pagan wedding there at one point. Uh, this is a museum that is that starts from uh, an accident and then quickly takes root in a joke. So uh, if you read your Shakespeare, you know that there's such a thing as a pizzle, which is a bull's penis dried to be used as a whip. Oh, yeah. And Sigurd Hjartarsson is the sort of person that was uh, born a Danish citizen in Iceland because he was born before 1944 and had spent his country, his, had spent his summers in the country as is not uncommon uh, even now. And so he would have used one of these as a child. And for some reason, while he was a, I assume, rather respectable headmaster, uh, one of his students' parents brought him a pistol as a sort of token of nostalgia. And uh, not knowing what to do with it, uh, he left it in his office where it was seen by the teachers who worked for him. And I said, it sort of makes me think about the way people talk about New York, right? That you, uh, right, you're an actor slash waiter, that there's so many hats to be worn, uh, as the Icelanders say, because we are so few, that of course you right, are a politician or work at the bank, but then you also right, have your fiber arts practice or the novel you're writing or the band that you're in. So the teachers at the school worked summers at a whaling station and were able to bring back a part of the whale that isn't normally used. And once you have the opportunity to put a 60 kilogram whale penis across your boss's desk, <laughs> you just can't resist. That is going to happen. And it's like it's like anything. Once people think there's a thing you like, uh, they will start bringing you more of them. And uh, this particular man, Sigurd Hjartarsson, had friends that he would maybe go to the bar with, and it wasn't hard for them to sort of joke their way through a theoretical institution, right? They, they named it, they gave it an acronym, they uh, awarded themselves various levels, various levels of membership. Uh, they are, I think, all at the very least upright members in good standing. And this thing just sort of grew for uh, more than 30 years before the, the curator's daughter had a little space in a children's clothing shop. She was having some trouble making rent and thought maybe it was time for there to be a museum, right? People had been coming by, uh, there would be field trips, community groups. The, the Icelandic word isn't uh, a stag party or a hen party. It translates as goose party for huh. the bachelorette party, right? They'd make an appointment to stop by. To stop by and see the penis collection. And they had other options, right? This is a man who collects uh, pre-Columbian art, uh, who has a very impressive insect collection. But, of course, this was the thing people stopped by to see. Huh. And so then one one thing you point out in your book is just how unironic and humorous the Penis Museum is, that it's a fairly straightforward, 
well, this is an object. And it, it sort of demystifies the penis, for, for lack of a better word. I haven't been there. So what is it like to visit the Phallological Museum? It's in some ways the sort of thing where it's surprising that we've never been to a comparative anatomy museum before. Hmm. Right? This was a... a really important branch of science, right? That we can trace uh, the work of Darwin and Cuvier and Huxley back to these ideas, right? This is how we know that whales are mammals in the first place. So, right, there's a, a longstanding uh, sober scientific body of work that is comparative anatomy. And yet this is the only museum I know of that you can actually visit and have a sense of what that means. And it is exactly what it says it would be, which is why it's so funny, because you have to confront once you get there that this is in fact, right? How could you have expected anything besides wall-to-wall penises? It said that's what you were getting. <laughs> uh, and yet, right, because of the cultures that we live in, because of all of the right significance and baggage attached to the male member, you imagine something else, right? You assume that it has to be prurient or sophomoric. I, I personally don't think I would have taken any interest. I would have just, uh, I would have passed it off too, except that I had met one Icelander in my life. And when I had asked Gardar what I should know about his country, the, the only thing that he, chose to told, that he chose to tell me was we have a penis museum, the only one in the world. And it, and it was it was literally recommended to me when uh, when I went there, and I didn't go. I was with my nephew, and and he thought it was strange to see necro pants or a penis museum. Um, but we did see the whale museum up north. We went to the Saga Museum. We went to the National Museum, and those were all such a delightful part of our journey through Iceland, along with reading the sagas aloud, which I recommend to anyone who is interested in Iceland. It's such a delightful literary tradition. So, since we're near the top of the hour, I want to zoom out a little bit. Given all that you know about museums, um, not just in Iceland, but other parts of the world, what might you recommend to travelers who want to use museums as ways of engaging with place and engaging with their own imaginations? I like this question a lot. Uh, I think there are a few different answers to it. Uh, one, I would encourage you as a person that has gone to lots and lots of museums and has had lots of time to confront my biases to them. I think you can't ever really know what a museum is until you get there. So, right, spend the $7, spend the $15, spend the $20 to find out what it is, uh, right? Professionally in my museum career, and then I've carried it over into my writing, uh, I've been trying to figure out how to ask for at least 15 years, what is the thing that I couldn't know to ask for, right? What is the thing that's going to be surprising and illuminating and resonant? And even as a collections manager, talking to other collections manager, it was rare that I could find uh, right, the language or the key or the nod for someone to say, mm, I know exactly what you should see. It's over here. So I think you sort of need to embrace the fact that you can't know the thing that you don't know to ask for. And the way to figure it out is to go see some things. I love this. It sort of makes the museum an adventure in itself, you know, just not, not really putting any expectations or letting the curator lead you through the museum, but just sort of letting your instincts maybe draw you through and just sort of fall in love with whatever speaks to you from the museum. Yeah, I think it's really important. Uh, efficiency is one of my favorite things in the world. And so I am tempted to try to maximize the museum 
I think this is why, in part, I love Iceland so much. It's so good at the small niche museum, right? All we are going to talk about is the history of French fishermen in Iceland. That gets one museum, and it's glorious, right? Uh, it is sized to the average attention span. I think paying attention to small museums is often a really good idea uh, because they, just from their architecture, right? They help remove that pressure, that thought that you somehow need to get your money's worth or your time's worth or to see everything, engage everything, check all the boxes. Uh, I think you're looking, I mean, museum professionals know that say in an art museum, you're spending an average of three seconds in front of any one thing, right? They know that the amount of time that any one thing gets engaged with is vanishingly small, not unimportant, but really rather brief. So if you can find something that's worth five minutes of your time, uh, that's kind of a big deal. And in some ways, I think if you can find two of those, you've had a good day, right? You have permission to take the rest of it off. You have done it, right? Uh, I still think about language that I've seen in museums, right? The idea that for every hour you exercise, your life expectancy is extended an hour. That's a wild concept, right? Just to, to think about that, that has right, affected me for more than a decade. So I think uh, giving yourself permission to take interest in a couple of things and on your terms. I always love museums that are free or donation after you leave based because they give you a chance to figure out what you might like, right? To, to browse, to, to dip in, to find one thing and think mouths that you carry in your mouth, or sorry, masks that you carry in your mouth. That is an astounding concept, right? That's enough to think on. I can uh, mull on that Right, that'll that'll serve me. That will enrich me for the rest of the day. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Kendra Green's book, The Museum of Whales You Will Never See, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com/deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate@rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.